your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Hello, this is Catherine. This episode is dedicated to my father-in-law, Melvin Praisewater, who passed away just over the weekend. His jokes will keep me laughing forever. And now, I couldn't wiggle a finger. Myelin Sheath spinal cord researcher, Bob Gould. Hello, everybody. This is Catherine with Your Positive Imprint. I was over in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, interviewing some ocean climate change oceanographers at the institution with my husband. And we happened to be at this amazing coffee shop that we found, Pie in the Sky. And this wonderful, delightful couple, Marianne and Bob Gould, happened to be in there. And we struck a conversation and learned quite a bit about Bob's extensive background in myelin spinal cord injury research. And so we thought it would be absolutely phenomenal to be able to have a chat. And finally, that day has come. Hello, Bob. (laughs) Hello, Catherine. Yeah, I'm very excited to tell you about my life and changes that have taken place. So where are you from? I grew up in Chicago. I went to school in Purdue in the Midwest, and I moved my PhD to Baltimore. And then I did five years of postdocing in Europe, in Holland, Scotland, and uh, England. And I met my wife there, got married, and had a baby daughter. And, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, crazy life. Well, so that was like a quick life in a nutshell. Quite, quite <laughs> so. Wonderful, because, you know, Marianne is European from Holland. And um, so we go, we go there pretty much, well, I would say every year. We'd spend time in Europe. Yeah. So I'm going to back way up. You talked about, and there's so much that's happening in your area of research that has been happening for years. And it seems like there's just more and more with the spinal cord injury and the brain. And there's a lot that I would like to learn and my listeners certainly would like to learn. So you grew up in Chicago and what made you decide or what prepared you for this background? Well, it's actually a very funny story. I was maybe in kindergarten and first grade and um, they were going around the class asking, you know, different kids what they wanted to do. And people had all these things. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a policeman. I want to be a nurse, a fireman, baseball player. And I, I wanted to be something different. And I sort of wanted to be like a doctor, but I didn't really feel that I had the um, ability. Maybe I was afraid of blood. So i so I said, I, I want to do something that really helps doctors out, but I'm not really sure what it is. And scientific research, you know, many years later is where I ended up. And it sort of does help doctors, hopefully will have some impact on people with spinal cord injury. Um, I can clarify to say that my research wasn't really on spinal cord injury. It was much more basically trying to under, understand how the cells in the nervous system make these myelin sheaths that coat nerve processes axons and let communication occur very, very quickly. So all the animals that have jaws, which are 45,000 species from uh, cartilaginous, cartilaginous and teleous fish up, up to mammals have a myelinated nervous system, which is quite similar. And animals before that, 600 million years ago, before they developed jaws, 
actually have no myelin. They just have very large axons. So they have an animals which are elasmobranchs, skates, and um, dogfish here. And I came for another reason, but I got interested in using those as animal models to study the evolution of myelin. I spent every summer here pretty much since 1980, since I've re- retired. And I retired because I did have personally spinal cord injury. And we're here year-round in Cape Cod. Now, before I, we get to the scientific part, you also mentioned that you did your postdoctorate, at least some of it, in Europe. And was it by choice, or was that where some of the heavy research was taking place during that time? What was your decision to work in the different places? Well, I'd never been to Europe, and I sort of, um, what a wonderful idea, you know, go to Europe myself. Maybe your before I went, uh, there was a very famous scientist who came to, well, I was at Johns Hopkins, and gave a talk about his research, which was very interesting to me. And um, I talked to my advisor, and he said, you know, maybe you should actually go and work in his, his lab, and that was in Utrecht, Holland. And um, I wrote him, and he said, if, if you can get some money, um, <laughs> you know, you're welcome to come. And uh, I was very fortunate that I was able to get some money through a, a foundation called Jane Coffin Child. And I went to Europe for uh, two years and worked in, in the lab. And um, honestly, it took me a while to get used to it. I mean, they said everyone speaks English and all of that. And they do in this big lab and there were other Americans. But I, you know, socially, when I would go out, I you know, would go to places and everyone around me would be speaking Dutch. After a while, I said, well, I really, you know, I'm sort of getting the hang of it, and I sort of don't want to just go back to the States. So I heard of a course in St. Andrews, Scotland, and went up there when I was um, visiting England, and they said, yes, there's this course in January. So when I finished my postdoc in Holland, I actually went for six months to Scotland and somehow wangled in uh, to get two more years in, in a lab in Cambridge, England. And um, it was actually on the boat trip from uh, Holland to to England that I met my wife. I don't know. So everything seemed to to gel. And um, yeah, I had five wonderful years in Europe before uh, coming back for a permanent position in the States. Wow. So on the boat, you met Marianne. <laughs> yeah, crazy. I know. Yeah. So yeah, do you me- remember how you met? Was it? The way I keep seeing in my head is is the Titanic, of course, and and meeting yeah. at at these social gatherings. So how how did you meet on the boat? It was a six hour uh, boat ride during the day, and I would went to the bar to get some either coffee or some something. I mean, it, and she was sitting there speaking, I guess, French or for some reason, and um, you know she was very attractive, and I started a, up a conversation and. Found out she was Dutch, and I had, you know, just come from from Holland, and her English was totally fine. And um, so we we started talking, and somehow we got to the idea that I was going to Scotland, and she had said that um, her parents and family, which she was the oldest of five, had always traveled together, and they had just come back from spending time in Scotland, and because she had been working in France, she missed it, and sort of had the idea that she would like to go to Scotland. And um, I kept that in mind. We exchanged, there was no email at the time, but we just exchanged addresses. And 
So I wrote her letters and then I invited her to come up to Scotland um, for two weeks in the summer. And she came and we had a wonderful time traveling around Scotland. And from Scotland, I, I moved to, to do a two-year postdoc in Cambridge and she was working in London. Oh so my start- gosh. <laughs> yeah, we started dating and um, so it ended up. So it was really just by chance, but it was great. Yeah. So, <laughs> and how many years ago was that? That was in um, 1970, February 72. Wow. Well, you know, it's it's so awesome when you look back and just think about the the ways that each of us have met our soulmates and the time that we spend with each other. And it's it's they're wonderful memories. And of course, it's a different sometimes it, it, it allows for different paths in our lives and did you go to yeah. England because she was there, or was that just another opportunity? Well, when I was in my two years in in um, in Holland, I I went to this lab in England for two weeks, or maybe two or three weeks, to learn an approach. And I I sort of liked the lab and the um, idea, and sort of had a an, an idea for a, a project which um, would get me more into neuroscience. Also, after living in Holland for two years, living in an English speaking country was a little bit easy, easier. <laughs> Did you learn the language while you were over in Holland? Not very well. I took some courses with, um, you know, but they were mainly on, on tape and everyone was speaking English so well. I, I must say since then, because Marion's parents never really got into speaking English whenever we were there, um, which was very frequently, all the conversation was in Dutch. So I picked up a lot of a lot of Dutch. Well, how wonderful! That that's just that's just fun to hear how people meet all over the the world. So now we're going to move on into your neuroscience research and your practices. First of all, we need a some sort of visual, a good definition, but a visual of what the myelin sheath is. So what myelin does is actually separates um one on one hand it's it's just an insulator it coats coats an active process and and allows things to not cross over from one place to the other in addition myelin um, doesn't cover a nerve completely so for example the largest nerves in our body run from the base of our spinal cord to our toes which are about a meter long and also from our brain to the lower part of our spinal cord, which is maybe at least you know half half a meter long. So there's these very long distances of which a nerve will, will try to communicate with a target that's very far away. And so that nerve is covered by myelin. The it's called an, the process is called an axon, and it's covered by little half a millimeter to millimeter long wraps, um, multiple wraps of myelin. And so the way that the information travels is it doesn't go smoothly along the whole nerve, but it actually jumps from the side of one node of Ron VA to 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 another, so, so so that there are millimeter long stretches of myelin separated by areas that are like one one thousandth that they called nodes of Ron VA, and that's where all the um, energy takes place and all the, all the currents move. So by having a myelinated nervous system, instead of things flowing smoothly from one point to the other, they actually jump from one point to the other so that 
they only have to be activated in in a very small part of the nervous system to travel. And the speed is very fast. So that the largest nerves in the human body are about 25 microns. It doesn't really mean much, but they're very thin. They're, say, 25 microns long. And I came to Woodsell actually to study the uh, squid giant axon because they've got very large axons and you can do things. And and their size is um, 1,000, so they're area-wise, they're um, thousands of times larger. And because they don't have myelin, um, they they need to be that large to, to send signals at the same speed. So you can't imagine having a, a brain which has fibers that are a thousand times lar- larger. Your brain would just have to be the size of a, a room instead of the size that it is. So myelin's really an amazing um, sort of invention that that happened about 500 million years ago in this common ancestor of all um, jawed animals. So um, only jawed animals have this interaction between these leo cells, which um, actually seek out the accents as they get large and generate this um, wrapped membrane, which can be cover an axon with um, anywhere between five and up to a hundred wraps and be microns long to, to actually visualize to be a millimeter or so um, from one node to, to the other. So they're very large structures and, and without them, um, then we would lose the ability to communicate quickly. So for example, people which have multiple sclerosis and other childhood diseases have either situations where the gliosos don't properly make myelin and communication is, is impaired, or that um, in the immune system starts attacking the myelin and there are gaps that are formed and communication decreases. And then spinal cord injury, which actually I, I before I had it, I actually wrote, um, oh yes, the reason I'm doing this research is to understand how myelin is made will help scientists or doctors really learn how to to combat um, spinal cord injury to, to help them get myelin back. And we're not really at that stage where we can get myelin back, but at least we're, we're getting a better understanding of, of how myelination occurs. And um, they're actually trying to develop approaches where you could get cells back into the nervous system and, and recreate myelin. I must say, in my situation personally, um, you know, having had the opportunity, the misfortune of, of suffering from a, a debilitating disease, um, actually, so I was riding in Woods Hole to, to a lecture, and there was another cyclist, and without looking, he just pulled in front of me, and all I could do was brake really quickly. I went over my handlebars and, and crashed, um, actually, near, near the drawbridge in Woods Hole. And um, when I regained conscious, which was very shortly thereafter, I, I realized I couldn't move anything from my neck down. I, I couldn't wiggle a finger or anything. And um, fortunately, I, I made very good recovery. I mean, I can't. I used to be a runner, and I, I can't run, but I've been able to get on a bicycle and, and bike and, and, you know, walk around and pretty much do most of the things that everyone else does so that I've lost. So my nervous system is not the same as your nervous system because I've I've actually have 
lost neurons and I've had myelin sheaths disappear. So I've, I have um, lower numbers of these nerves that allow me to move my muscles. So, so there's both a, a motor system, which all our muscles are connected to nerves and they all move coordinately because of this very complex system that allows us to move our, our hands, our legs, and everything else. It also, there's a, a feedback system, which includes a sensory system that tells you, you know, temperature, pain. Um, it also has a proprioceptor system, which tells you where your, where your limbs and joints are so that as you move, you can coordinate them because you get this feedback of where, where things are. And I've lost some of that, um, but fortunately, by um, I didn't lose that much, perhaps. Or there are there is some remyelination and some regrowth where things have re- reconnected. So that I'm leading a you know what I would say is a, a very um, fulfilled life. This is for the past eight and a half years now. Oh, so you were on the bike and you got hit by a car. No, I didn't get hit by anybody. Um, I was approaching the drawbridge in Woods Hole, and there was another bicyclist who was behind a car, and he was impatient that the car wasn't moving. And I was just at the point where I wanted to go around the car and the bike. There was a path on the right, and the bicyclist didn't look. And at the time when I was like just approaching it, he decided to move into that path. And it would happen so quickly that all I could do was grab my brake so I wouldn't run into him. Oh over the handlebar so he just went away he didn't even i mean he must have heard something but he never came back so then i went over the handlebars if i hadn't a helmet on actually i'm sure i would have been dead you know i was a very i mean i i bought, was a fortunate enough that i bike commuted most of my life so i'm a fairly um experienced cyclist but if i wasn't wearing a helmet I, i'm sure i would would have been dead and not have this conversation so i encourage all of you to wear helmets uh, when you're biking. Yeah, oh, absolutely. We do quite a bit of, of mountain biking. And so this actually, your research, did it help you to understand your own recovery or maybe that parts of you won't recover? For sure. Um, I could visualize the, you know, the, the spinal cord before injury. What happened to, you know, there's Bleeding, there's infiltration of, of cells that are um, trying to re- repair the spinal cord, that trying to clear the debris of dying dying cells. So, I, so I had a, a pretty good picture of, of what was happening in my spinal cord, and and deep down, I I knew that you know that those things are happening to me, and and I had losses that I I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to do. The, the things that I, that I was. I mean, I, uh, for a while, I didn't know that I would ever walk again, whether I'd be in a wheelchair, whether I'd be able to do much. And um, after the accident, I was um, taken by ambulance to Falmouth Hospital. They said they couldn't do anything, and I was flown to Brigham, uh, where I spent a week. And they said um, from the damage that there was actually pressure from the the bones that had been sort of moved in my vertebrate onto my spinal cord. And they said, well, you know, we'll give you a week to decide whether you want to have an operation to free it up and, and help or not. And um, I couldn't move and I didn't sleep for the whole week and I was just too exhausted. And 
my doctor said, well, you know, if you don't have the surgery, perhaps in a year you, you might recover the same, perhaps you might not. But I, I just couldn't have this. I just knew that I, I wasn't, I was just too exhausted physically and mentally to undergo surgery. So after a week, I was transferred to Spalding Research, um, which is one of the better rehabilitation hospitals in the country. And um, after two or three days, I started moving my thumbs. And um, from there on, my legs started coming back. I mean, so I was still paralyzed. And they said, oh, yes, you have five weeks, and then you're out of, out of here, and we'll do the best best we can. And um, I think because I was a marathon runner and was sort of disciplined, I, I did what I could to try to, you know, put as much effort in, into my recovery as possible. So my legs came back first and my hands uh, much later. I mean, at first I couldn't feed myself. They fed me. And then eventually when I was able to move my arms, they would strap a fork onto the back of my wrist so I could eat with that because I couldn't move my fingers. And eventually when I started moving my fingers, they would take a, a fork and put it in, wrap it in a big thick thing so I could sort of hold on to it and started eating. And then they'd have exercises of how to, you know, make letters and everything else and relearn to, to write. And um, I just was very fortunate that, that so much came back. And thinking, you know, deep down about, you know, how my spinal cord was, was changed, I was sort of um, in awe that, that, with all these changes that, that all these things have come back. So one thing that hasn't come back, well, for one thing, I talked about proprioception. And one of the ways to test proprioception is to put a tuning fork on your leg and feel feel, feel vibrations. And two years later, I, I did not feel vibrations in, in my leg, but um, now I do feel vibrations in my leg. So, But um, I don't feel temperature from my nipples down my body. And so I feel it in my arms and hands and upper body, but I don't feel it. So if I take a shower, the first feelings I get in are drops of water hitting my body are like little bits of pain. And then eventually it goes away. But I, I can't really say whether what's hot and what's what's cold. Um, so oh, So you could scald yourself. Yes, but usually you feel things with your hands. But I mean, yes, I, I mean, the advantage is, I guess I could go into freezing, walk into freezing <laughs> water. <laughs> I don't get it into my upper body. And, um, but I guess it's not that, that good. But I mean, most everything has come back. I actually, so um, going back, so the, this happened at the end of July and I came back from spotting to, to Falmouth and um, we had, we have a house here, but it was really our, summer home. I, at that time, I was actually doing research in Paris and had planned to go back in September, but obviously I, I couldn't go back, so we ended up staying here. And one of the consequences was that um, as it got cold, I started getting stiffer and spasms. And um, in that February, we went to go to my grandson's um, first birthday in Houston and sort of had the idea that maybe we should spend our winters in a warmer climate because I was really not doing well in, in cold weather. And so we, not that year, but the next three years, we, we went and spent our winters in Houston, and there was a very good rehabilitation place there. But um, I like the idea of, you know, living year-round in one place, so we've decided to come back and 
I've sort of adapted that I don't really have problems, such problems with cold anymore. Wow. Wow, you've gone through a lot of healing. And I, I'm trying to understand the neuroscience part of this. So it was the myelin sheath that was damaged. And so then you had motor neuron. Okay, so, so yeah, so let me try to vis- give you a visualization okay. a little bit. So this, the spinal cord is um, about 12 inches long, and it, the, and it has two thick areas that are about half an inch thick. Um, there's an upper part in the cervical region and a lower part, and, and the, the thickness is related to all the nerves that communicate with arms and legs. And so a, a physical damage is actually, it's called a contusion injury. And what it means is that either by having bones slam into it or simply um, being rapidly stretched, the nerves themselves, um, the myelinated fibers with their long axons are pulled, pulled away from the cell body. So that a nerve contains um, three types of structures. It's got a cell body and nucleus. It's got um, dendrites which um, receive information, and it's got a long axons to communicate with with targets. And so um, the way the spinal cord is is arranged is um, the central portion, which is actually in a sort of butterfly shape, contains all the motor neurons which innervate the body, and they send processes out you go to hands and arms and, and all the muscles. And um, they're surrounded by um, all the fib- ascending and descending myelinated fibers so that the outside part of the spinal cord is white matter. And it's a little bit random what gets damaged. Um, so there's like hundreds of thousands of fibers that are descending and ascending and um so at the point of injury, which mine was in my mid-neck region, which is called the cervical area, um, and it's three to five, so it's about an inch long on my spinal cord, um, some fibers, a portion of them get damaged. So everyone has spinal cord injury. Um, it's totally random what fibers are affected, how many fibers are are, are affected, and... Um, how badly they're affected and what their the recovery. The myelin part of it is, has to do with the fact that um, as the fibers die, the myelin around them actually um, has nothing to work with, and it actually builds. Build, you got to get rid of it. It doesn't clear that fast, so other cells come in to clear it up, and they actually take up a lot of space, and they prevent um, new fibers from going through these areas which are called glial scars and, and reconnecting. Plus the distances are so large that um, you really don't get reconnections. In other words, when my spinal cord formed, I was you know more or less an em- embryo so that the distances between the cells which are in my spinal cord and the, and the muscles at that time were, were just millimeters apart. I grew... They grew longer, but they didn't. They never had to 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 navigate from one point so far away. So the chance of having a fiber from up above connect is some is something almost impossible. But what happens is that there are areas surrounding areas which where the fibers you know function normally, 
And what they tend to do is um, they will reach out and put new branches, which will find targets that are not innervated, and so that they will get a little bit of double and triple duty to, to sort of get things working again that aren't working. Wow. So you talked about earlier the fact that you really wanted to get into some sort of field where you could help doctors. And now you've been doing this research for decades. How have you been helping doctors yes. with your research? No, there's really um, nothing that I could see in the foreseeable future that would magically allow one to, um, you know, to to do anything major to in spinal cord injury or multiple sclerosis that would um, give back what was lost. How have doctors been able to use your research to understand the body? So I, I think that um, what my research does is identifies um, molecules that are that are functioning. And my research is um, I write scientific papers and share it with colleagues, and they write papers and share it with colleagues, go to meetings and and so forth. And we're we're trying to understand more how the signals from the axons allow the cells, cause the cells to really make myelin as myelin is lost, how to recruit, recruit other other cells um, in, into the, the region where, um, say, if a, if a glial cell is damaged and it's unable to maintain its myelin, then what you want to do is get other cells attracted to the area and, and make myelin. I mean, not every fiber is lost. There's it's this whole spectrum of, of changes. And I, I think um, so people are able to take, you know, fetal tissue or, or even adult tissue and, and have them recommit to becoming myelin-type cells and, um, you know, myelin-forming cells. And, and so the idea would be to, to get cells back into regions where there are injury that would complement the, the cells that were lost and, and then um, facilitate sort of recreating a, a system where you could have uh, the, the nerves. So, so if, if, I, if I have, we go back to the idea that I've got a um, half a meter long or, you know, a, a foot and a half long nerve going from my brain to my, to my spinal cord and, and um, there's regions of that where the, because the glial cells died that, that I've lost myelin, then when the signal gets to those regions, instead of it just moving across quickly, it either can't move across because there's not the the energy and not the the ion channels that allow the electrical signals to to get through, or if or if they do come into those regions, the the, the movements are so much slowed down that the ability to 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 do the things or to to make to make the muscles move the way they were before is is slowed and and compromised so that. By getting cells to to um, put myelin back around those areas that are denuded, then you can can restore function. And and there is work going on, going on, um, which you know sort of indirectly my research. I mean, my research is just a small amount of all the research is going on, but it's sort of getting a sense of what the cells are trying to do, how they do it, how they find how their processes find the accents that are the 
initially that they're going to myelinate. So thinking back to development, um, I, I'll go back to the thing where I said that initially in an embryo, things are they're very small and connections, connections are made. And the connections maybe first be made on, on muscles that are very large, that are important for very general movements like the sort of um, general swimming or large scale movements and the more finer movements come later so that certain accents that are involved in the large movements they enlarge first and they get myelinated first and the other ones wait until they they you know find their targets and, and myelinate more slowly so that there's a, pro- a progression and um, so you don't myelinate an axon until it starts enlarging. So there's signals from the axon that's saying, you know, I'm I'm ready, come myelinate me. And so we have to really understand those signals. We have to try to understand how the the neurons um, that are losing myelin, whether they can recreate the signals and attract glial cells. And so right now there's a lot of research at stages of trying to define the molecules understand um, what causes the molecules to to be synthesized again and come to the places where they they make this attraction and signaling. So that research um, maybe is a little bit of a pipe dream for saying, oh, yes, we can put it in and, and recreate a, a very complicated nervous system. But it, it does um, allow um, an understanding um, so that can understand more um, what's changed and how to really get it back to repair. And the idea of actually trying to um, get into this into the systems where there's there's communication between the molecules and augment it so that things will happen faster. Um, things will happen in, in a in a time dependent fashion um, because there's there's a lot of things going on at the same time. I mean, as soon as you have a spinal cord injury or even some of these um, inflammatory things in multiple sclerosis or development, um, you have have changes which related to to clearing debris and stopping um, blood flow and and, um, allowing cells from the immune system to come in and clear. But it's a balance between, you know, clearing, over clearing, causing more damage versus not causing more damage and and to understand the character of the cells and how they're able to um, respond to situations with their, which, you know, they, they never have encountered. So that, whereas my research is basic, there are people that are actually exposing spinal cords of different animals, rats or mice, and having uh, weights drop onto the spinal cord, causing contusion injuries, and trying to see what they can do to, to facilitate recovery. And so that, and so the, they use the knowledge that I'm generating to, to apply to those models. Does that help? Yes. And how, how do you think the research is going with regard to multiple sclerosis? Is Do they know anything more, or is that just a slower process because of funding or because it is the nervous system, which is a very intricate piece of our body. Yeah, so um, most of the research on multiple sclerosis that's, that's been 
positive. I mean, and I'm not really following that literature. You know, I'm sort of retired. I'm still finishing some scientific papers, but I'm I'm not as as broad, so I'm not as up to date as so. So my answer is not at the same level that if I was um, pre pre injury and was still working. But um, there is. On the one hand, in multiple sclerosis, um, an immune-related response, and the drugs that are around are ameliorating more that phase um, of trying to combat the immune system. There's less, and, and because it's a whole nervous system and they're just different reasons, some people lose vision, some people lose sensory things, it, it happens sort of in various places. It's um, the research from the field of people that are studying you know, neurons and glial cells is, is probably not generating drugs or therapies that specifically would it, it would more prevent or slow down um, the idea that, that, say, the immune system somehow mis, misrecognizes the nervous system and starts coming in and doing it, attack it. It's sort of on the level of saying, okay, so this person has multiple sclerosis and there's something wrong that his immune system is starting to attack his body. And we can work on pushing the immune system to try to slow it down from doing that. But from the side of getting in and having already attacked certain areas and having changes where there's less nerves or less myelin, to pinpoint those areas and to really try to to get cells into to um, recover axons is, is still in, the, I think, the dream stage. And then you said earlier you were studying the giant squid. Did I understand you correctly? Yes. Yes. That's what actually brought me to Woods Hole. It was sort of a serendipitous finding. The squid has such a large axon, as I told you, that you could actually go dissect the squid and squeeze out the axoplasm and study it as a, as a biochemist. And that's what brought me to Woods Hole originally. Interesting. Now, you also mentioned that the sheath, the myelin sheath, was not existent in animals with jaws prior to some sort of evolution. How were you able to to discover that? Well, so that, so that was known. So, um, so there's a there's an evolutionary tree, and so. Jawed animals are called nathostomes, and they're part of a species of chordates. And, and the two species that are um, sort of on the branch before the animals, which are jawed animals, are lamprey and hagfish. And so they're sort of in the same lineage, but they branched away before, you know, sharks and other fishes came in. And those animals have no myelin. Oh, this is... Why? This is pre-dinosaur. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, dinosaur. Yeah, this is, yes. yeah, because the, okay. So I thought it was something, you you were meaning that the sheath kind of evolutionized. So through, 600, six, 600 million years ago, um, there was no land and everything was in the ocean. And the type of animals that were, survived for a very long period of time in that stage were called astracoderms. Um, and so one of those, or some of those, somehow evolved this relationship where glial cells, um, so there are glial cells in, in hagfish and lamprey, um, and 
you know, over over time. So, I mean, this is something that happened millions of years ago, and all we have now are fossil records, which have no myelin, and we have modern-day species, which are the extant species. So we, we have to sort of reconstruct from what's available now. Sure. Well, Bob, your positive imprint, and I, I know you say, well, your your research has been minimal with what you see it as, but really your contribution cannot go unnoticed. And and I think that, that what you have been doing even, I mean, it's been decades of your research based on the myelin sheath and the ways that it interacts with our entire nervous system, the motor neuron activity, etc. I think that it's incredible. And what type of last words do you have to share with regard to inspiration of your research to the global community? Well, I, you know, so I mean, there are different types of people. I mean, my wife is a very social person and my daughter is a doctor and she's a very social person. And um, I mean, you know, for me to even do this interview or, or chat, I'm not really a, <laughs> a, a, a chatty person. I mean, I became a long distance runner because it just gave me lots of time. I didn't have to talk to people and, and be by myself, but it, it also gave me a lot of um, um, training and, and strength. And I should say my recovery was partly due to that, but I mean, I'm I'm very lucky that I have a, a wife that pretty much has dedicated herself to me. I mean, I didn't drive for a year. I I didn't cook. I I didn't. So she's pretty much taken over and, and done a lot. And um, although I sort of retired, I mean, I I really wanted very badly to go back to Paris. I mean, we loved it. I loved learning the language. I loved the colleagues I, I had there. But I've I've had to you know make this adjustment, but um, it's been, you know, it's been very good. I'm actually getting involved in trying to uh, wake up our community to the problems of, of climate change. So, and it's actually a very um, active group of people. I mean, so I ended up, you know, living year round in this place. It was my my summer home and it's a, a very uh, lively and interesting place place to live and um and i'm still continuing to you know to follow the research and to to um, put my efforts into writing scientific papers and um yes life is good bob gould bob gould you are a very very humble person thank and thank you so much for the positive imprints that you have contributed in your lifelong research uh, and the scientific papers that you've written with regard to myelin and spinal cord injuries, etc. You're, you're just very, very humble. But again, thank you so much for your global contributions to the scientific research. Well, thank you so much for giving, giving me an opportunity to, you know, to tell my story. Um, actually, when I um, had this accident, within a year, some people said, oh, you should, should write, write a book. I'm not really a writer. You should. I'm mean, very slow. Um, but it's <laughs> nice to have at least an outlet like your outlet to at least tell some people my... And there are lots and lots of wonderful stories out there, and I, I don't know if I could 
who would want to compete in, in those areas. But I mean, to have this opportunity to really share my story is, is very super, and I thank you so much for uh, giving me that opportunity. Oh, absolutely. It was all because of pie in the sky. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thanks for listening to Your Positive Imprint. My mission is to bring the world of positive imprints to you and to inspire you to find your own positive imprints. Music by Chris Knoll. ChrisKnoll.com. Well, I appreciate all of you for listening and supporting my variety show podcast. Sign up for those podcast updates from my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, where you can listen to episodes or listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. So over the last couple of weeks, you've heard our nephew talk at the end of the show, and this will be the last one that he's able to talk on because he will be moving to California. So are you ready? Okay, so what is it that you always say? Um, what's your positive print? That's right. And what do we say to people when we ask them about what their positive imprint is? But you have to say it louder. What's your P.I.? All right. Your positive imprint. What's your PI?